Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's Roman Britain week at History Hit. We've got podcasts going out about Roman Britain. We've got documentary going up on History Hit TV, exclusive documentary on Roman Britain. It's all happening. It's Roman Britain here, there and everywhere this week. So this is a repeat podcast. Many of you won't have heard it. It was broadcast first years ago. It's with Dr. Simon Elliott. He is a force of nature. He's written many fantastic books. Uh, He's been on this podcast many times before. You may have heard him talking about probably the largest single military campaign ever fought on British soil. That was Septimius Severus's campaign in Scotland. But in this episode, we're going to talk about the Classis Britannica, the Roman fleet that guarded the shores of Britain from incursions across the North Sea, the German Sea. It's such a fascinating subject, and Simon definitely does it justice in this one of the epic podcasts of the back catalogue. If you want to listen to all the other back catalogue podcasts, they're only available at History Hit TV. It's our history channel, basically. It's like the Netflix for history, but it's got audio. It's better than Netflix in many ways, really. I mean, that's what you hear people saying, some people say. It's got hundreds of documentaries and lots of audio on there. It's got the new documentary on Roman Britain launching this week. And if you want to go on to History Hit TV and take out a subscription, that'd be fantastic. A great way to support everything we're doing here. We're working on a big documentary at the moment around Viking ships. So, you know, all the support very, very gratefully received. If you head over to History Hit TV and use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free. And then you get a second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. And feast yourself, eyes and ears, on Roman Britain. So in the meantime, everyone, here's Dr. Simon Elliott. Enjoy. Simon, this is such an amazing subject because I often feel that the naval, the maritime, is ignored when people think about the Roman world. But that was, to a very large extent, that was a maritime empire, wasn't it? Well, it was. If you think about the Roman Empire, I mean, they have the Mare Nostrum sort of in the Mediterranean. And then they have the sort of uh, the Atlantic up to and around the uh, sort of uh, British Isles. So, yeah, it was definitely a maritime nation. And also, don't forget the rivers as well, because the the frontiers, for example, in the north were along the Rhine and along the Danube. The principal routes of access on major campaigns were down rivers. So when Julian invaded um, Persia, he sort of went down the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's what that's where they carried all their that's where the the, the logistics sort of took place. So the maritime component was a vital aspect of the Roman Empire. And as you say, it's often overlooked. While you're on that subject, this is a key point, isn't it? Because rivers now have been sort of canalised, ditchified, sewerised. Rivers were mighty, sprawling, wide. I mean, how 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 wide would the Thames have been, for example, in the spring when when it was in flood? Probably about twice as wide as it is today, because you've got to bear in mind with the major rivers we have today, the sort of embanked, etc., so the Thames is a good example, so probably twice as wide. Although, interestingly, actually, probably more easily fordable um, when you go uh, upriver, or, or sorry, downriver, for the simple reason that uh, there would have been much more sort of marshland, etc. And I can give you a great example of a river from some of my research in the Roman Medway Valley. I live in the Upper Medway Valley, and the, the Romans had five major ragstone quarries in the Upper Medway Valley, which I think, by the way, were actually run by the Classis Britannica on, the, on behalf of the state, the Roman Navy in Britain. And they used the river Medway to transport uh, millions of pieces of work ragstone which ended up sort of building a lot of Roman London through to the mid-third uh, mid century. And that is a journey of about 170 to 127 kilometres. 
one way, including an overnight stop. So you're talking about a lot of a huge amount, let's say half the stone which built Roman London, being um, quarried in stone in ragstone quarries in the upper Medway Valley. So we're talking about above the tidal reach and above Maidstone, and then being sent sent along the River Medway and then sent along the Thames Estuary to London. So I mean that's the kind of enormous undertaking that they'd have done in just the civilian context. We're not talking about what they did in a military context either. Okay, so Simon, that's fascinating stuff. Let's start at the beginning. Where does the classic Britannicae start? Or indeed, should we start with the, with the Claudian invasion? Obviously, that was a, a maritime amphibious operation. It's also very important because that is the origins of the Classis Britannica. So for background, the Classis Britannica was a regional navy. Okay, So in the, in the Roman Principate, um, the, the, instead of having one huge navy or sort of ad hoc navies as the Romans had throughout, for example, the Punic Wars and the Hellenistic Wars and the Civil Wars in the Mediterranean in the later centuries BC, as you go to the age of Augustus and onwards, they, they, they changed that and they ended up having regional fleets. So they ended up having 10 regional fleets covering different geographic areas. So there is a Classis Alexandrina in Egypt, there is a Classis Germanica in Germany. But for us, our regional fleet was the Classis Britannica, created uh, from the 900 ships which were built for the Claudian invasion in AD 43, uh, staffed by about 7,000 personnel, and that remained in being from AD 43 through to probably the mid-3rd century, when we probably want to touch on it later, but it mysteriously disappears from the historical record. So yeah, that's, that's how it originated. And what kind of ships? I mean, was there a, a change in design from the Mediterranean craft or the riverine craft of Germany and Central Europe to the more uh, oceanic, the, the tougher conditions that you, perhaps you might expect to find in the Western approaches or, or in the Channel? Certainly Caesar, when Caesar was fighting his campaigns against the coastal, um, coastal Gauls in the, the, the first century BC, he, he, um, he initially employed some sort of polyreme large galleys from the Mediterranean and later copied some of the ship designs of the Gauls themselves which were better suited to the rough waters however intriguingly for the classic britannica we we know from uh, sculptures and carvings and from the the, the the written record principally their main fighting platform was the um, libernia uh, bireme so we're not talking about these huge polyremes we're talking about bireme galleys much smaller uh, with a ram and a ballista or two maybe a, a, a sort of a castle mounted on the on the rear and by uh, bireme you mean two decks of oars do you absolutely right yeah but smaller we're not talking about these enormous sort of quincamarines and polyremes which they use in the punic wars and against the the hellenistic kingdoms these are much smaller much more suited to nipping in and out of uh, out of coastal waters and the, the reason why they're better here is actually to, when you look at what the navy was doing because in its principal war fighting sort of uh, role, its combat role, it wasn't fighting sort of um, symmetrical conflicts against opponents in the sort of uh, open ocean, you know, sort of in a blue water context in, let's say, the North Sea or Atlantic approaches. It was much more sort of literal based, going around the coast, etc. Principally in a military context for, uh, for the Classic Britannica, supporting the army as over, let's say, a period of uh, um, uh, 60 or so years, it went through its period of conquest in Britain, and then supporting the campaigning, let's say, in the north, working very closely with the legions, etc., um, in the campaigns, let's say, of Agricola, and then under Hadrian and Marcus Aurelius in the second century, and then there's a huge campaign with Severus, Septimius Septim Severus, as well in the early third century. We always forget, I think, that look at Alexander the Great, for example. That was the navy played an absolutely crucial part in Alexander the Great's campaign of conquest in in uh, the Middle East. Presumably, the same thing was happening in Britain. So, as the Roman legions marched north, there, there would have been. 
as much amphibious support were there on, on either coast as possible. There were, there were, Dan, let's go back to the numbers. There were 900 ships created for the um, Classic Britannica with 7,000 personnel. So this is, a, this is a big force. Bear in mind, Britain, for the majority of it, uh, the, the Roman Empire, had an exponentially large military presence anyway, probably in the second century, 12% of the entire military presence of the whole empire in what was 4% of the geographical area, given that the north and the west of Britain was effectively the wild west of the Roman Empire anyway, with constant campaigning. So what the regional fleet did here, the Classic Britannica, let's look at the campaigns of uh, Agricola when he sort of uh, marched north into Scotland. You'd have the legionary spearheads following largely a sort of a coastal route, and then the Classic Britannica bolted onto the maritime flank, um, providing uh, support, supply, making sure that when these legionary and auxiliary spearheads ran their way through enemy territory, there were fortified harbours ahead of them already, where the fleet had already sort of secured a base, and there were stores ready, so that the following day you had uh, ongoing this process of legionary and auxiliary spearheads smashing forward, uh, and then linking up with the fleet at the end of the day's march. The supplies are all there, there's a harbour, there's a base, etc. And the literal's completely controlled, so there's no way that the Caledonians in that case could actually go around the flank of the, the Roman spearheads either, because the Romans have got complete control of the, of the literal. And again, the, the Liburnia and the smaller Scaffer and Myopa cutters and skiffs were sort of nipping forward to make sure that they were doing all the scouting, and then behind them you had the ponderous merchantmen bringing all the sort of um, supplies and transporting goods and allowing amphibious support. And presumably the geography of Britain, I've never really thought about that before, but the geography of Britain is quite suitable for that because you've got this spine of mountains in the middle and as you as you progress up, you, you've got rivers, the Trent and the rivers, for example, coming down from, from the, the Mersey that you could actually, you could advance up either side of Britain and have pretty much constant naval amphibious literal support, couldn't you? You could. If you look at the, I mean, it's another great point, that if you look at the campaigns of conquest all the way from... From the Claudian invasion in AD 43, there's a river crossing battle, which I think is on the River Medway near where I live, where the Navy would have been involved. There's a crossing of the Thames to, to enable the Romans to get into Essex, where they then get to what later became modern Colchester, and then Claudius arrives, again brought over by the Classic Britannica, and the province is declared. So the Navy's involved there. If you look at the campaigns of Vespasian, the later emperors, an absolutely fabulous um, sort of series of campaigns in the southwest, they're a coastal route. So the, the, the Vespasian's legions, these legionary spearheads, are moving along the south coast and they're going to the southwest. The navy's bolted onto the flank all the time. If you go, then the campaigns go up into the sort of Bristol Channel, into the Irish Sea. It's the navy again. The campaigns of conquest in Wales, the navy's around the coast again. Then you get the two the campaigns against the Brigantes, and again they go on an east coast and a west coast track. And on each coast, you get the navy bolted on again. That's why this is a really good, interesting untold story. It's almost it's telling the story of Roman Britain from a perspective that no one's ever touched upon before. And yet there's this fleet of nine hundred ships and seven thousand men. Which is in a very substantial sort of component of the Roman military here. Yeah, this reminds me a bit out of context, but um, the, the legendary historian Nick Roger, the naval historian, points out in, in at least a couple of his books the only successful invasions of Scotland have been naval invasions of Scotland. So, so where you've got a, a, a strong army, of course, marching up, but it's got proper naval support on its flanks, and, well, it's, and they're the only ones that work. So. It's, it's, it's important to remember with Scotland, with the Romans, the Romans never obviously fully conquered the north of Scotland, but they had the, a number of major campaigns. The two we know are best of are um, Agricola's campaigns, made famous by Tacitus, obviously, which, by the way, is the first time we know in the historical record that Britain was circumnavigated by the Classic Britannica. But also, this major campaign with 60,000 men, which Septimius Severus mounted in the early 3rd century, 
um, where he he he, he uh, increased the the storage capacity at South Shield, which was a major base on the northeast coast for um, the Classic Britannica by tenfold to actually enable the supplies there to get the 60,000 men to campaign. It was a desperately hard campaign um, over two years. And although, again, uh, there was no political will for the Romans to actually remain there and fully conquer the north of Britain, after that campaign, there was 80 years of peace on the northern border, which to my from for my memory as an historian uh, with a wide ranging interest in military history is probably the longest period into in the pre modern era you actually had any peace on that northern border and again it's the navy facilitating all these campaigns going into the Firth of Forth, going into the Tay, going around the top into the Moray Firth, and all the time as they're going, they're building these fortified harbours, many of which we know of today. Oh, that, I mean, that's fascinating stuff. So, th- what evidence of the Classis Britannica do we have now left to us in the ar- archaeological record? You mentioned these uh, fortified bases in Scotland, but I understand there's some stuff down the south uh, east coast. There's, there? there's loads and loads of different things actually. There's the epigraphic record, so you've got a lot of uh, epigraphy about it. A lot of the epigraphy, by the way, is in Boulogne. Now, it's very interesting that Boulogne. No, sorry to be stupid. Epigraphy is what um, writing uh, right right yeah yeah f- uh, funerary uh, monuments writing on funerary monuments uh, okay um, and a lot of it's in Boulogne and that's because Boulogne was the the headquarters of the Classis Britannica because the Classis Britannica not only had responsibility for let's say uh, the North Sea Basin the English Channel the Atlantic approaches the east and west coast the Irish Sea but it also had responsibility intriguingly for protecting the north western continental coast of the Roman Empire up to the the Rhine as well which reflects the way the Romans viewed the English Channel and the North Sea in a different way to us because for them it wasn't the barrier which we see of from military history in, in recent times. It was actually a sort of a point of connectivity and a, a motorway by which Roman Britain remained a fully functioning part of the Roman Empire. So you have epigraphy in Boulogne. You also have uh, things in the archaeological records. So we, 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 um, we know where a lot of the fortified harbours were. Uh, we have some beautiful graffiti. So one of my friends uh, supplied a, a piece of graffiti on some waste lead uh, from, I think it's from Caister by, it's from one of the, either Caister by Norwich or Caister by Sea, uh, which shows uh, a Roman galley being graffitied by somebody who was clearly drawing this from having seen one. So there we have an absolutely wonderful piece of first-hand evidence of somebody drawing what they saw as a Roman galley in the Classic Britannica. But intriguingly, you also have the written record, of course. There are lots of references, and I'll come back to that. But intriguingly, the Classic Britannica was also employed like an army service corps as well as as a military force because it reported to the procurator in Britain, not the governor. So therefore, it was was there also to make the the province pay into the imperial ficus, the treasury. So it ran some of the metalla industries as well. And one of the big ones was the iron industry in the wheel through to the mid-3rd century, which made a lot of the iron which went to the northern borders to, to enable the military to operate. And the, the, the big iron working sites, which were monumental in scale, but they were factory-sized to us today, near the coast, near Hastings. They were run by the Classic Britannica. And we know that because all the buildings have got tiles stamped with the Classic Britannica. But I'll come back to the written record, if I may, Dan, very quickly, because you have um, two really interesting pieces of... Uh, in the written record firstly the first time the navy's mentioned at all so we know it was formed in ad 43 but the first time we it's mentioned at all is in the flavian period in the context of a failure in uh, ad 69 and 70 the classic britannica is recorded by tacitus as taking a british legion across to the rhine to help fight um civilis 
uh, and his revolting Batavians, uh, who were uh, auxiliaries who were revolting against the Roman Empire and causing problems on the Rhine border. So this legion got to the Rhine estuary, de, de bust off the ship, was marched off by, obviously, a rather rash, rash um, legate senator, and he forgot to put any guards on the ships. So you can imagine this invasion force effectively carrying a whole legion in the Rhine estuary, being left overnight with no guards, and hey presto, the local Germans burnt it to a ship. For the first time it's mentioned, it's in ignominy. It's a sort of a, a, a classic sort of failure. And it was rebuilt very quickly, obviously. But finally, in terms of um, the written record, I'll go back to epigraph epigraphy. The last time it's ever mentioned, the Classic Botanica, is in AD 249, in the context of a, a, a funerary stele of uh, one Saturninus, who was a, a Nearchus, a captain of the Classic Botanica, who was buried, and this is in AD 249. Interestingly, he's from North Africa as well, which shows how cosmopolitan the Roman Empire was. And that's the last time it appears in history. That is, is amazing, isn't it? It just shows that the the Britain who went on to colonise the rest of the world was itself initially colonised by people from... And, and we have we have records of, I think, people from Syria and Iraq up around Hadrian's Wall as well. It was such an incredibly cosmopolitan empire. There's an, there's, an, there's loads and loads of interesting sort of references up there, including, of course, to the Classic Britannica, who... who um, there is epigraphy along Hadrian's Wall of them actually building parts of Hadrian's Wall when it was built and also maintaining it as well. And there's a great reference after the time of um, the Classic Britannica in South Shields, uh, towards the end of the Roman Empire in, in, in Britain, where we have some Tigris boatmen acting as bargees on the Tyne. So it genuinely is a sort of a very, very cosmopolitan empire. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids – Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. The Roman fleet, would they have served their entire career here or would they have then switched over to serve in the Eastern Mediterranean or something? Presumably knowing 
the, the, the water, the tide, the conditions was absolutely vital to being a good naval officer. Absolutely right. So, I mean, you're looking at two different things here. So if you look at the officers themselves, the officers were very cosmopolitan and often moved between posts. So if you were the um, sort of, uh, if you were the um, a senior officer in the, in, in the classic Britannica, it's a similar kind of, kind of career path to uh, being sort of uh, working with the Roman auxilia, not the legionaries, but the auxilia sort of in the Principate, where the, officer, the, the senior officers, uh, like the Perfectus who was in charge of the Classic Britannica and his senior uh, Nearchus sort of captains, they would have come from the equestrian um, uh, aristocratic uh, route and background, as opposed to the senatorial one, which uh, the, the legion legionary commanders came from. So it's very much on a par with the auxilia. And intriguingly, remember it reports not that the regional fleets didn't report to the governor, who was the, the military boss and the legal boss of a Roman province, later provinces in Britain, uh, he reported to the, um, the, the the procurator who was in charge of making the province pay. So it was a very dual kind of role. On the one hand, sort of this military role, and on the other hand, this sort of um, this service corps role, sort of uh, doing administration, doing engineering. So we know they were building bits of Hadrian's Wall and running running the industry as well. So the fleet's founded in AD 43. You've got 900 ships. The chances are they would have recruited some of the experienced sailors from the Mediterranean to help that get going. But afterwards, they would have recruited local sailors with local knowledge. So if you're going back to, as an example, this journey of 127 kilometres from the quarries in the upper Medway Valley to London, carrying loads of 50 tonnes of ragstone, that's a difficult journey, right? That's not an easy journey at all. And you're tacking backwards and forwards in pre-modern sailing ships through the um, Medway estuary into the Thames estuary. So you need to be really experienced sailors and absolutely knowing the water's dead on. During their campaigns, do you have any sense of them dealing with a, a, a specifically a maritime threat from perhaps Jutland, northern, the North, northern Europe, Scandinavia, uh, are they fighting any sea battles in this period? Uh, for the majority of his existence, no, simply because there's no, there's, no, uh, there's no symmetrical threat. So it's not like the Punic Wars where you get these huge fleets of polyrene galleys fighting these massed sort of battles. Most often these battles, by the way, are within sight of the coast. But nevertheless, they're there to control the blue water environment, the access to the blue water environment. If you go beyond the campaigns of Septimius Severus in the um, early, early 3rd century and look at the gap between then, so let's say from AD to uh, 1520 through to the middle of the century when the navy disappears that's when you start to begin to see the beginning of saxon let's say let we'll call them saxons but german north germanic raiding across the north sea and across the down the down the continental coast and across the english channel not on the levels that you saw later but that's when it begins and interestingly this is when we begin to see the early saxon shore forts being built as well so for example the one at Reculver. so the chances are that for the last 30 years of its existence the classic britannica suddenly found itself um, doing something almost completely different to the role that it, it had fulfilled, supporting legionary spearheads on the, on, in, in the littoral, and it found itself actually operating in the, the, the Blue Ocean Zone in the North Sea. But we don't have any accounts of, of that particularly. We don't, but what we can use is analogy, so we know where the other regional fleets, what they were doing. We know the raiding was taking place uh, from the archaeological record, and we know uh, anecdotally it was taking place because the early Saxon shore forts were being built. And these aren't small forts; these are very substantial investments in time and and manpower and money to actually build these forts. So you're not building them for nothing. Um, the early Saxon shore forts in, uh, are all built sort of to give control to um, sort of riverine 
access. So there's a there's a, definitely a threat they're being built for. And we know what the other regional fleets were doing sort of um, around this time as well. So, for example, you start to see the Gothic raiding into the eastern Mediterranean sort of around the same time. So so I, I, I'm personally convinced that that is exactly what the, the, the classic Britannica was doing. Why do we see this expansion of, of Saxon or northern European fleets? I mean, are they are they learning from the Romans? Are the Romans getting weaker? Is the classic Britannica being weakened by political division or, or just what's happening here you're pulling me on some of my favorite subjects now so what you have in the, well there's a number of things there so firstly in the middle of the third uh, third century you have the crisis of the third century so a lot from, from the assassination of alexander severus in ad 235 through to the accession of diocletian in ad 284 you have lots of turmoil politically and economically in the roman empire particularly in the west anyway okay so there, there may be a sort of a weakening there which people north of the, the, the limes in Germany um, could exploit. But also you often find when you have um, uh, an economic superpower with a border, there is always a flow of wealth across that border, which then changes the political structure north of the border. So you tend to find a pattern where the there are, there are a lot of... Um, small political organisations north of the border, but gradually certain leaders amass wealth from contact of what some sort with the Roman Empire. And so there's a co- coalescence of power behind bigger and bigger and bigger political units. So that's why after, uh, that's why from late, let's say the middle of the third century onward, you start seeing these big confederations sort of um, creating friction along the border, ultimately sort of bursting into Gaul and into Germany. And the Saxon raiding, we'll call it Saxon raiding, but let's say it's Germanic raiding from a variety of peoples. Um, it's probably a reflection of that. You know, they have the maritime, I, I think they probably had their own maritime technology anyway, because it's different to the Roman maritime technology. But they would have found out that there was this fabulously wealthy province of Britain, especially the south and the east, um, where you know uh, there were opportunities for them, and there was a coalescence of power, and then you end up with the, the raiding starting. And at the same time, the Roman central government was able to spend a little bit less on 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 the fleet, I suppose. And they were fight well, and, and fighting themselves, and also because you have e- you have economic pressures as well. Um, let's let's look at what happens politically in northwestern Europe at this time. You have the turmoil of the crisis of the third century, and then AD two sixty, you have Posthumus initiating his Gallic Empire, so that pulls Britain and northwestern Europe away from from um, the central empire for uh, up to ten years. And then you have my favourite Roman of all, the pirate king Carausius, who um, creates his um, North Sea Empire. Um, from AD 286 to AD 296. Intriguingly, of course, Carausius is initially brought in by, by the emperor as an experienced naval warrior to clear the North Sea of pirates, which is an a, example of um, showing how the Classic Britannica by that time had disappeared because these Saxon pirates were becoming endemic in their raiding. Then, of course, Carausius um, uh, gets accused by the emperor of pocketing the wealth uh, from all these raiders that he's successfully um, kicked out of the North Sea, and therefore he usurps and creates his own North Sea empire from northwestern Gaul and Britain. So you're saying that after the crisis of the third century, the, 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 in which the Romans, oh, I suppose they, they come fairly close to collapsing in, in certain parts of the empire, they, they never really get the classis Britannica back after that? No, it disappears then. It disappears before that. The last reference we have is in AD 249. So at some stage from AD 249 through to the accession of when we know that there was endemic raiding in the North Sea and therefore no no fleet, 
uh, in Britain, um, the Navy disappears. And that's where the great mystery is, why, the, why this Navy disappears. Um, there are a number of reasons why it could have been. One could be an economic reason because the, the military was becoming increasingly expensive to run at a time of economic crisis. But I think actually it fell foul of um, a, a usurpation in one way, shape or another. Um, it's got the crisis of the third century anyway, so it could have backed the wrong horse at the wrong time and then been punished by the winner. And specifically, you have the, the Gallic Empire uh, of Posthumus, where you have a number of um, Gallic emperors, some usurping themselves, and then being brought back into the fold by the, by, by the, by the, the Roman emperor, Empire in the West within a decade anyway. So at any stage, the, the prefectus of the Classic Britannica could have backed the wrong, wrong horse, and they were punished by being disbanded. Um, it's, it's, what you're what you're really uh, reminding us here is something that, that I, I'd never thought about in terms of the Roman Empire before, but you, you see it in uh, early modern history, which I know a bit more about. Which is, you you can imagine, lead, you can turn, you can pr- sort of, you can invent legions quite quickly, but what you can't do in history is is will into being uh, maritime force because you need a logistics, you need boatyards, you need skilled craftsmen, labourers, you need wood that has been properly treated and and left to, to be prepared. All of that takes generations, or certainly decades. So, so actually, once you lose that capability, it's quite hard to just reimagine it again. It's, to- it's absolutely true. I mean, there's so much skill involved, not only in uh, in running a fleet and operating it, but also building it. I'm always minded of uh, a quote from my my second favourite admiral uh, of all time, Cunningham, uh, in the Second World War, when he was uh, offered the opportunity of withdrawing the Royal Navy from taking uh, uh, evacuating troops. Uh, and taking them to Egypt, and uh, he said he quoted, and I'm, I'm going to misquote it, but effectively he said it takes three years to build a ship, but 300 years to build a reputation. We fight on, um, which still sends a, a, a tingle up sort of a, a, a my spine every time I sort of read that. And for the Roman sailors, it would have been the same as well. But remember that. Let's go back to my point earlier about the status of Britain within the Roman Empire. It's one of the farthest places you can go in the Roman Empire from Rome and um, the sort of centre of political power, even when. Powers sort of distributed elsewhere and later in the empire. It's still the furthest from Rome you can go in the west. Uh, it's always a frontier zone. The north and the west is never is, is always a militarized border zone. So although it was part of the province later provinces of, Brit- of, of, of Britannia, it wasn't the same as the south and the east, which were fully functioning full fat parts of the empire. The north and the west was a border zone. If you're an aristocrat that wanted to make your name fighting, you can go either to the 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 the, the northern border in Britain, or you go to the Persian frontier. Um, um, so, so it, it, um, I mean, I mean, so Britain genuinely was, I think, sort of the north and the west was the, the wild west of the Roman Empire. Well, uh, that is you've given us. Okay, you really helped to, to change the way I think about the Roman Empire and certainly its uh, conquest and policing of, of Britain. Uh, and I guess, if, if, I suppose finally, I, I should say, obviously, the fleet was never reconstructed after that bizarre break in the third century. And so the last hundred years or so of Roman rule here, I, I suppose the growth of those Saxon shore forts is actually a sign of a weakness of... Na- it's, 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 obviously, it's a sign of weakness of naval power. You only build forts on the land if you can't stop people getting to your getting to your coastline at sea. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at some of the forts, so, for example, the one at Dover, the, the Saxon Shore Fort at Dover was built on top. 
of an earlier Classis Britannica fort. So there were some Classis Britannica forts, but they were very much aligned with the actual fleet as opposed to sort of being these huge structures of these Saxon shore forts. So if you want to go to somewhere like Richborough, you can see the scale of some of these Saxon shore forts, which is, I go back to my point, they're intense investments in, in, in um, from the Roman state to build these things. Um, and, and in terms of the naval, we, we do know that there was naval stuff happening just from the written record, if nothing else. So, for example, the Emperor Julian in the AD 360s built 700 ships in Britain and Gaul to help take grain over from Britain to help feed his army on the Rhine, the army that fought the Battle of Strasbourg. Um, but this isn't this isn't the integral, fully functioning, full-fat navy, which we had until the mid-3rd century. These are one-off events. So a fleet is constructed to do a specific thing. You may have local coastal sort of forces dotted around here and there, but not this homogenous major sort of 7,000-man, 900-ship navy, which existed for, um, for well, 200 years of Roman rule. Well, like the Victorians who built all those follies outside Portsmouth and around various uh, ports around the UK, Wasting money on shore defences when they and they had battleships out at sea. It's an over the horizon deterrent, much better. So actually, the last hundred years of Roman rule in Britain would have feels like it would have been quite vulnerable because they didn't have control of the waters. It suggests they didn't have control of the waters around the coast. You had Saxon raiding. You had you had you you had you had forts around the south and the east coast, which are called by the Romans the forts of the Saxon shore. Uh, now, however you define what the Saxons were, whether the Saxons were the raiders or whether the Saxons were being brought over as federate uh, mercenaries, they were coming over here, and that does indicate in some way, shape or form that control of the North Sea towards the end of the empire had been lost. We even know that um, there's a great conspiracy sort of invasion where a number of the opponents of the Roman Empire from north of the border, from Ireland and from, from, from Germany... Uh, hit the north of the province I think it's in from this is from memory I think it's in the AD 360s it may be a little bit later but we know for a fact that for probably one of the first times uh, part of that invasion uh, from all those places was to send natives from the borders by sea around Hadrian's Wall to get to the northeast coast that would never have happened um, with the classic Britannica in existence well as you approved, and I hope I have gone on about endlessly on this podcast. If you wish to have a healthy, happy, and affluent life on this island of ours, you need to keep the navy strong. Thank you so much, Simon. Your tell us your book is. It's called The Seagulls of Empire: The Classis Britannica and the Battles of Britain, published through the, the History Press uh, on the third of August, and it's available in all good bookshops and on all outlets as we speak. Well, you you write as enthusiastically and knowledgeably as you speak, and everyone, this is a fantastic book. I urge you to buy it. And Simon, I hope you'll come on again to the podcast. Talk to us again soon. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.